Okay, uh, we're going to consider Isaiah chapter 1 now. Uh, if any of the children or young people or actually anybody else who would find it helpful, uh, wants a, there's a sheet of questions at the back which might help you follow the sermon. If you've not got one of them sheets and you want one, just raise your hand and Anthony will bring you on. Isaiah chapter 1 is the chapter we're going to consider. I want to start with an important question. What makes you acceptable to God? What makes you acceptable to God? Now, by that, I mean, uh, why are you considered a good person in God's eyes? Or what does he look at in your life that makes you stand out from the rest of the world, from the other people that you live around? A hugely important question for Christians to be able to answer. And it's not uncommon for many people who claim to be Christians to point to things in their life, things that they do. Especially, for example, if you've grown up in a Christian family, if you've been coming to church for many, many years, there will probably be lots of obvious things in your life that make you different from, let's say, the people in your class at school or the people that you work with or your neighbours down your street. Uh, Well, for example, you're here at church this morning. That's one obvious example that distinguishes you from others. Maybe there are other obvious things as well. You speak differently. Maybe you don't swear or maybe you don't tell the same sort of rude jokes that others tell. Maybe your knowledge of the Bible is something that you think distinguishes you, makes you different from other non-Christians. Maybe your family has a time of worship every day, a time where you particularly get together to read God's word, to to sing praise to him, to pray to him. That would be one way that you're different from others. Maybe you think God is pleased with you for those things. Maybe your behavior at school or at home, you behave better than other people that you know of. Maybe you work with more integrity that sets you apart from your colleagues. Many people look at all these things in their life that they're able to do, things, yes, that God commands us to do in the Bible, and they assume that because I've got these things there in my life, God must surely be pleased with me. I'm doing what he asks. Why wouldn't he be pleased with me? They reason. What I want you to show, what I want to show you today is that if those things on their own, Those religious acts, I'm going to call them, those religious things we do, on their own, they are no reason to be confident that God accepts you or loves you. They are no reason, if if that's all you have. If that's the only thing you can point to when asked, why would God accept you? They are no reason for confidence. Today's passage from Isaiah was written to a people who were religious, very religious, in all sorts of different ways. Now, as we go through the sermon today, you have to bear with me. In my notes, I've written down Israel time and time again. And chapter 1, verse 1, it tells us these words are about Judah, not Israel. Okay. So uh, the problem was the Israelites, they were one one big country, and they have now split by the time Isaiah is writing. Uh, By calling by calling them all Israel, it won't make a big difference to today's message. Um, so if I if I slip into calling them Israel instead of Judah or Jews, then please bear with me. But in future weeks, when Isaiah starts talking about the kings and what God's going to do to these different nations, then it will make more of a difference. So if I refer to Israel, really, I mean Judah this morning. 
And these Jews, these Judahites, they were very religious. They're, they're the Old Testament Jews who've got all this system of religious uh, um, rules to follow that God has given them. They've got their temple. They've got their sacrifices and offerings. They've got special clothes that they have to wear. They've got special ways that they have to wash and dress. They've got special prayers that they say. There are all sorts of things that they do, special religious things that they do. And from the outside, they look like, wow, God must be pleased with these people. But despite all these wonderful things that they were doing in obeying God's law, God's message to them in this chapter is it's not acceptable. God's message to them in this chapter is, it is not acceptable. There is a huge problem that just hasn't been dealt with. And that problem is sin. In verses 2 to 4, God begins his message by showing the sin of Israel. He says to Judah, you have rebelled against me. Look, here's an example. Look at a cow or a donkey. God says the cow or the donkey knows who it is that comes to them every day to feed them. The cow knows who it is that comes to milk them. The cow knows who it is that owns them. And because they know who their master is, what do they do in response? Well, they obey their master. The cow pulls the plow and the donkey carries the bags. But what about Judah? You're like my children who I've cared for, who I've reared and brought up. And yet you reject me. Haven't I given you much more than just food and instruction uh, and yet you don't even know me, God says in verse 3. Verse 4, the the words get stronger. You sinful nation, you have forsaken the Lord, says God. That is, they have completely abandoned him. They have spurned him. That is, ridiculed and insulted him. They have turned their backs on him. And these are the reasons which God declares Judah a sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt. Now, just for a moment, think about if today you heard somebody described as someone who had forsaken God, turned their backs on God, uh, spurned God, never known God. What sort of person would you be thinking about? Perhaps you'd think about an atheist. Somebody who totally rejects that God even exists. Uh, Perhaps you'd think about someone from another religion, someone who worships an idol, uh, or perhaps a a Muslim or something like that. Someone who who, uh, worships a God, but not the God of the Bible. Perhaps you'd think of a criminal, somebody who's very obviously doing lots of wrong things. But God is saying these things about Judah. Judah, the people who in verse 11 bring a multitude of sacrifices to him. The people who in verse 15 uh, spread out their hands in prayer to him. The people who in verse 14 have all sorts of festivals and Sabbaths and new moons to honour God and to, to revere God. And to these people, with all this religious activity in their lives, God says, you have rejected me. You've turned your backs on me. You never even knew me. Now, this really challenges our own understanding of what sin really is and how we might see it in our own lives. Yes, of course, sin is the lies, the greed, the selfishness, the murder, the hatred, the adultery. Those very obvious sins, which sometimes we see in our own lives and we find it so much easier to see in other people's lives. But sin is also a rejection of God, a turning our backs upon God. 
If the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, then perhaps the first and maybe greatest sin is that of unbelief. And God, in these verses, rebukes Judah, not so much for the ways that they have outwardly broken his law, but because in their heart of hearts, they have turned against him. They have ignored him and they have rejected him. Now, perhaps in your life, you've been taught how to behave well. You've picked up patterns of behavior which fit uh, alongside other Christians in your life. And maybe your sin is not so often seen in what you do wrong Outwardly, maybe your sin is more often seen in your unbelief. You need to ask yourself honestly, even if your life is filled with all sorts of religious activities, which you think might be a a means to pleasing God, you've got to ask, why is it that I'm doing those things? Am I doing them? Am I here at church this morning? Am I reading my Bible? Am I praying? Am I giving time, money, service, energy? Am I doing these things really because I love God and I want to serve him? Or am I doing them because my family's told me to? Am I doing them because the people in my social circles all do the same thing and I don't want to look different? Am I doing them just because I've formed these habits uh, over years but now do them really without thinking? Or without purpose? Is it just because it gets you into less trouble? Is your heart actually turned away from God? Even in those moments that you claim to serve him. Just as much as lies and stealing and swearing and all those other things are sinful. God also says a heart that doesn't know him is sinful too. Sin is the problem. And it's a problem because sin has consequences. Sin brings judgment. In verses 5 to 9, God pleads with Israel. Why do you continue in your sin? Verse 5. Why do you persist in rebellion? They're like children who've been disciplined by their father. And rather than learning from the discipline and stopping doing the thing that was wrong, they just go and do it again. And so get more discipline brought to them. They're a bit like Rocky Balboa. Have you seen the films? He's in the ring and he drops his guard and he lets his opponent tire himself out by just smashing his face in. And in the films, Rocky Balboa, the big strong one full of grit, manages to stand up long enough to throw the deciding punch at the end uh, and knock out his opponent. But for Judah, the reason they stand is not because of their own strength and grit and power. The reason they keep standing is because of the mercy of God. Verse 9, unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have been like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah, that town, that city back in the time of Abraham, which God totally wiped out. Unless God had been patient with us and merciful to us, he would have wiped us out. What did the French police do to those terrorists who committed that attack in Nice this week? The police wiped out the terrorist. I don't think he was actually killed, but he was severely wounded. He was shot. What does any king or authority do when confronted with a direct attack on their rule? The king wipes out that attack, that rebellion. Why? To protect their own honour and also to protect the people under their care. What does God do 
with those who spurn him, who reject him and who forsake him. What does God do with sinners? He has every right to wipe them out, totally eliminate them. And the question is then, why aren't you wiped out? Why haven't I been wiped out already? Why are any of us still here? And the answer is not because God has changed. It's not because he's gone soft on sin. It's not because he's forgotten or because he's slow. It's because he's patient. He gives you opportunity to deal with your problem of sin. Well, how do you deal with your problem of sin then? What is to be done? For Judah, they thought that religious acts would solve the problem. But you need to understand this. Religious acts will never solve the problem of sin. That was their solution, Judah. Um, If God is angry at us, if God is blessing at us, they were thinking, if God isn't blessing us, maybe if we do more of the things that God has instructed his people to do, uh, that would solve the problem. You know, when you get in trouble at home, uh, do you ever try and make up for uh, the broken relationship with maybe your parents or maybe your wife or maybe your children by doing lots of other good things? Do the washing up, take the dog for a walk, uh, do the hoovering, iron some shirts, whatever else. Sometimes it works, doesn't it? You, you get back in the good book to the person that you've offended. It normally takes more than you would have hoped to, to, to achieve it, but o- often it makes some difference. But not with God. Not with God. He says to, to Judah, verse 11, these sacrifices that you bring in, what, what even are they to me? I have no pleasure in them. Verse 13, these offerings are meaningless. Worse than that, they're they're actually detestable to me. I hate them. I cannot bear them. Verse 14, my soul hates what you're doing. I hate these festivals and feasts that you're holding. You're making things worse by trying to appease me in this way. You're not making anything better. Why so? Why would God be so displeased at people doing the very things he's asked them to do? Because they're having no effect on the hearts of these Jews. They're having no effect on the hearts. So religious life cannot fix sin because it only deals with us on the outside. It does not change our hearts. What God really wants from these people, verse 17, is stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Your hearts essentially are still turned against me. And and all these religious acts that you do, they are shown to be so false and empty because of how you live the rest of your life. It doesn't matter how many offerings you bring. If you show that you're still turned against me in the way you deal with others, the offering is worthless. You do not really know me at all, and yet you're pretending like we're the closest of friends. It's as though you've had your entire leg blown off, and you're trying to fix it with a sticking plaster. It's like your entire house has burnt down, and you're there mowing the lawn to try and tidy things up a little bit. Our relationship is totally broken, and you're trying to make it look okay by these religious things that you're piling on top. Now, I doubt that anyone here this morning is using burnt offerings and and new moon festivals and uh, and sacrifices to get into God's good books. But there might be people here thinking that maybe their church membership is a reason that God will be satisfied 
and pleased with them. There might be people here thinking that their service in the church over many years is reason for them to be climbing the rankings of God's acceptance. There might be people here thinking that their knowledge of the Bible and their love of the old hymns and their care for the poor and so on and so forth are the reason that God might be pleased with them. If that's all you're depending on, if that's all you have to offer God, you're just like Judah. You need to see that all you're doing is is cleaning the outside of the jar when it's the inside that's dirty. And so what's the solution? In verse 18, God makes an extraordinary offer. God offers his own grace. Though your sins be like scarlet, God says, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. In those days, scarlet and crimson, both deep red colours, were both colours used to dye clothes. And, and the stain that this uh, this colour brought was such that once the colour got in, it was very, very hard to wash that colour out again. And you know, really, that's still the case today. If you put a red sock in with some white shirts, your shirt goes a horrible pinky colour and you're basically better off chucking your shirt away rather than trying to, to wash it back white again. Our sin is so often the same. The stain that it leaves runs real deep. And it it can't be fixed just by uh, patching it up from the outside. Sin stains us deep inside. Our most secret and intimate thoughts are stained by sin. It's there in our heart of hearts. It's almost fundamental to our nature. And, And if you've ever tried to deal with sin by just working harder, you've probably come to the point where you wonder, is it ever possible to get rid of sin? The more I dig it out, the deeper the sin goes. Can I ever root it out? But God says it can be rooted out. You can be washed white as snow. You can be entirely pure, free from sin. But it's not a work that you can do for yourself. It's a work that God must do for you. Uh, Look at verse 19 and 20 to see a little hint of that. You've got to be willing and obedient, God says. And if you resist and rebel, resist and rebel against who? Resist and rebel against God, of course. If you resist and rebel, you will be devoured. Instead, you've got to be willing and obedient for God to do his work. Uh, Imagine you've got toothache uh, and you go to the dentist and the dentist sits you in the chair and says, Open wide, please. I can fix the toothache for you. You can either be willing and obedient. It's not you doing the work, but you've got to be willing and obedient for the dentist to do the work on you. Or else you can resist and rebel. You clamp your mouth shut. No, just give me the paracetamol. Give me the drugs. I'll go home and take them. I'll go home and chew on a clove. I'll do anything rather than have your drill come anywhere near my teeth. If God is going to do his work, you've got to be willing and obedient to submit to him. You can't carry on trying to patch it up yourself. You can't keep on trying to do things your own way to please God by the things that you're able to do. Convincing your family that you're a good person goes nowhere to convincing God that you are right with him. Well, how is God going to do this work that he promises to do? How is he going to make us pure and wash away this stain of sin? Well, in this chapter of Isaiah, we don't get an awful lot of information. 
But one of the reasons that we're going to be looking at the book of Isaiah over the next few weeks and probably months is because what Isaiah does for us is he he spends time painting the picture of the problem of our sin and he paints it in some real challenging ways. And then through him, God brings us a promise of a Messiah, one who will come, a servant, a servant who succeeds in every way that Israel fails. And it's through this servant we will discover in Isaiah that God is going to achieve his work of making us pure, stain free, white as snow. You don't get all of that in chapter one. You get a tiny little hint of what God is going to do. Verse 21, God refers to the faithful city. That faithful city in the Old Testament is Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah. And in verse 26, God describes this faithful city and he says, I will restore your judges as in days of old. I will restore your counsellors as at the beginning. That's the work that God is promising to do for Judah. Uh, Well, when is the beginning? Who, Who are these judges that are being referred to? Well, presumably you go back to the beginning of the time of Jerusalem as a city. When did that start? It started with King David. King David was the one who captured Jerusalem and made it his capital, as it were. And God says, I'm going to restore a time to like when we had King David on the throne. King David, the man after God's own heart. King David, the man who was promised a son who would sit on his throne forever and ever to rule in all righteousness. You get a little hint here, if you're careful at looking, to see that Isaiah is pointing us forwards to the great son of David. Jesus. It's it's pretty cloudy. It's pretty misty. You don't get an awful lot of information. But it's just a snippet. With hindsight, we can look back and know that the one that Isaiah is referring to here is God's own son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who was going to come. Jesus is the one who was going to take our stains, our sin upon himself. And give us the gift of his pure spotless robes of righteousness. Do you want to be acceptable to God? The only way to achieve it is to stop trying to wash your own clothes clean. Stop trying to wash the outside of the jar, expecting it to make the inside clean again. Stop trying to trying to make yourself good enough. Instead, receive the grace that God offers. Be dressed in the robes of righteousness that Jesus provides. Trust in him and him alone for the forgiveness of your sin. The choice is really stark in verse 19 and 20. Either you can be willing and obedient and you will eat the best from the land. To Judah, that was pointing them back towards those promises that God had given them so long before that they would live in a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a promise of abundant life, goodness and joy in all that they do. Or else, if you resist and you rebel, you will yourself be devoured. You will be eaten up. It's a choice between life and death. It's a choice between eternal life or eternal death. Let me reason it through with you, God says. What have you got to lose? But before you rush ahead and accept this wonderful gift of grace, uh, there's just one note of caution that Isaiah wants to make. 
You need to understand this, that God's grace, as wonderful as it is, will also bring with it an awful lot of change. God doesn't offer his grace just as a covering for us to continue going on in our sin underneath. A big part of Isaiah's message to Judah is that God is going to bring all sorts of reform, change, purification, if he's going to do this work in their lives. Now, for Judah, uh, all the injustice that we read of, for example, in verse 23, uh, the the rebellion, the thieving, the bribery and corruption, uh, the injustice, the oppression against the weak and the poor. God isn't going to let them things stand. Those are the things which stand directly opposed to God's mission and his kingdom. And so in verse 24, God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to get relief from these enemies. I'm going to avenge myself of these foes who stand against me. The dross, the the waste, the unvaluable, the leftover is all going to be purged away. And only what is pure will be left behind when God begins and finishes his work. Now, that could well be painful at times. In verse 25, God says, I will turn my hand against you. That is typically an expression of judgment. That's like uh, you've come to the end. I'm about to turn my hand against you. I'm about to make you like uh, like Sodom and Gomorrah was. It's that kind of expression. And yet God uses it to say, I'm going to turn my hand against you, not to wipe you out, but to thoroughly purge away your dross, to remove all your impurities. God is a consuming fire. He burns up what is impure from within us. He burns us to make us clean. It's not a process that is always comfortable or easy or enjoyable. But the question is, are you willing and obedient to let him take away those things which stain you? Are you willing and obedient to let him take away your arrogance and your pride? Are you willing and obedient to let him make you humble? Are you willing and obedient to to allow God to use your strengths for the benefit of others? Perhaps even to your own detriment. Are you willing and obedient to accept that you are wrong and that you've done wrong? Now, for those rulers of Judah in the firing line of Isaiah's prophecy here, the question to them is, what do they love more? Do they love these gifts and the bribes that they chase after more than the knowledge of God and the forgiveness that he offers? And the question for us is very similar. What do we love more? Do we love our own way of life? Do we love being our own gods? Do we love uh, living life my own way for my own pleasure? Do we love our own greed and laziness and entertainment and leisure more than the grace that God is offering us? Are you willing to be obedient and submit? The path of the Christian life is a road marked by Suffering, difficulty, it's a road on which you carry your own cross, being willing to die every day, at every turn, at every moment, as God does this work of purification in you. And yet it's a path that we don't walk alone. In a few moments, we're going to be taking the communion supper together. We're going to be reminded that Jesus already walked this path, not to be purified of his own sin, but to take the punishment that we ought to have deserved for our sin. He walked the path carrying his own cross. He walked the path of suffering 
suffered God's wrath, his burning fire, in order that he might come out the other side glorified, enjoying the abundance of life. The Christian path is the exact same path that the Lord Jesus Christ walked. No, we don't walk it alone, we walk it with him, by our side. His death and resurrection is both an example to us and also a foretaste. The resurrection that Jesus enjoyed is the resurrection that we will enjoy if we allow God to do his work in us. Come, God says, let me reason with you. If you're willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist or if you rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. You'll be wiped out and eaten up.